I'm just going to go peek my head out in the hallway and figure out how long that conversation is going to last so we can get going. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist. I'm Todd Mack here with Joseph Dorowski, and each week we look at a great character and a great story. Today we're talking about Kitty Pride from the comic book series Astonishing X-Men, written by geek demigod Joss Whedon and drawn by John Cassidy. This series won uh, an Eisner for Best Continuing Series in 2006, and John Cassidy won the award for Best Artist in 2005 and 2006. So, uh, Mr. Dorowski, I have a question for you. Shoot. Can you, in as much as you are able to, uh, give us a short uh, description of who are the X-Men? Okay. Uh, the X-Men are a comic book uh, team of superheroes uh, that were fir- first published in 1963, created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. This is a period when Marvel was publishing a lot of their uh, early superhero characters, and the X-Men were different because they didn't have a secret origin that involved a radioactive spider or gamma radiation or cosmic rays uh, or um, you know a metal suit or anything like that. Uh, they were just born different, and each one uh, manifested... Uh, different powers, uh, generally as they hit puberty. And because they were born different, they sort of represented the next stage of human evolution. And there was a metaphor that began to be developed in the series and became really prevalent in the series in the 80s and 90s about prejudice, about the X-Men being different from other humans. And so even though they are protecting the humans, they are hated and feared by the very people they are sworn to protect. Such irony. So tonight we're going to be talking about the astonishing X-Men and uh, specifically Kitty Pride. So who is Kitty Pride? Kitty Pride is a character that was not one of the original X-Men. She was introduced in 1980 and created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And she has the power to walk through walls, uh, phase through solid objects. She was introduced as, uh, I believe she was 13 uh, when she was first introduced. She was the youngest member of the team. Uh, John Byrne and Chris Claremont uh, and several other creators have kind of created a new wave of X-Men uh, to reestablish the, the, the X-Men franchise, and Kitty Pride was kind of the now, now this, uh, another character being added into the mix. And she, uh, she was a really fun character. She really resonated with the audiences. She's had a bunch of code names. She was called Ariel and Sprite before she settled on Shadowcat, which has been her main code name as a superhero. Is there any like, short story behind Shadowcat? Why she said, or like any rhyme or reason why Kitty Pride is called Shadowcat? I I never really got it. I don't know. She's originally called Sprite, or is it Ariel first? I can't remember which is first. Actually, I've read a lot of X. But do any of these names have anything to do with her or her powers? You know, now that you're saying it, this seems like something I should know or have (laughs) thought about before, and I haven't. She's just Shadowcat. She just is. I don't even think of her as any of those names. I just always consider her Kitty Pride. Yeah, she has one of those great uh, secret identity names that just rolls off the tongue really well. Kitty Pride. And yeah, that's usually how I think of her as well. So uh, so how did you come across Astonishing X-Men? I'm a longtime reader of the X-Men from when I was probably 10, I think, is when I got my first issue. Uh, and I, of all the superhero comic books that I've read, X-Men is probably the one I've followed most closely and read the most issues of. And I, uh, not only did it as a fan, I kind of, uh, made a career out of it. I, uh, wrote, uh, my doctoral dissertation on, uh, it, the portrayals of race and gender in the X-Men comic book series. Available for purchase. <laughs> That's a little plug. It's, uh, now been published as 
X-Men and the mutant metaphor, race and gender in the comic books. Uh, and how about you? How do you know uh, the X-Men and uh, this particular run of the X-Men? So my very first experience with the X-Men was when I was a little kid. I used to watch the cartoons, the Saturday morning cartoons. I really, really liked them. Fantastic 1990s Fox cartoon. Yes. Um, and then I uh, actually never read comics when I was a kid. I started reading... I think you made fun of me for reading them when we knew each other. Uh, back before we didn't didn't know each other? Is that, <laughs> is that what that means? <laughs> um, or, or when we knew each other before? Yes. before uh, now. My brain is ready to explode. So I watched the cartoons when I was a kid, and then I was finishing my dissertation and feeling like I needed something a little lighter than these Spanish Civil War novels uh, that I was reading. And so I was listening to lots of podcasts at the time, and in particular, I think it was an episode of Back to Work with uh, Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin. They were talking about comics, as they often do on that uh, podcast, that has nothing to do with comics. Um, And they mentioned, Merlin Mann mentioned that uh, this Astonishing X-Men, the the Whedon run of Astonishing X-Men was a good jumping in point. So I started reading it, um, really enjoyed it, and then uh, actually talked to you, and you recommended a bunch of other stuff, and I went back pretty much to the beginning, the beginning of the good stuff. That's the Claremont Burn era, or yes. the, I guess Giant Size, that's the, that's yeah. not yet, Claire, uh, that's not Claremont Burn yet, that is, uh, oh my goodness, I'm embarrassing myself, I cannot pull the names of the creators of Giant Size Excellent. Dave Cockrum. We'll have uh, full links in the show notes. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. So, uh, so Len I Ween, started... Dave Cockrum, and Len Wein. Okay, so I started reading this uh, this classic stuff, and uh, there was Kitty Pride, and I loved her. Loved her then. Loved her now. She's fantastic. she's one of my favorite characters. Uh, she easily. is astonishing. Uh, that is a lovely segue into this particular storyline, uh, and she really in this storyline is uh, the heart of the series. Uh, you can tell that Joss Whedon is a, a big fan of Kitty Pride. Uh, Joss Whedon is noted for creating uh, Buffy Summers. And he has uh, Buffy said... Buffy Summers of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. And Whedon has said that uh, growing up, he he was uh, a fan of Kitty Pride as a character. Uh, my Side note about Kitty Pride. Uh, I've read that John Byrne knew when he was in art school before he became a comic book artist, he knew a girl in his art class that was named Kitty Pride, and he told her, I'm going to name a character after you because you have the greatest name I've ever heard. Wow. And he did, and the woman received so much fan mail. This may be apocryphal. I've heard this on the internet that she had to, or read this on the internet, that she has changed her name legally since then. Wow. If you heard it on the internet, it has it's to true. be true. Yeah, it's, you know, it's the kind of hardcore research I do. For this, I vaguely recall things that I read once on the internet. Yes. Well, that's the best kind of research, really. Yeah. Stuff that can't, uh, be, uh, can't be refuted. Yes. Yeah, just make the argument and, and say it with confidence. So, in this, uh, this issue picks up, or the storyline picks up, after a lot of changes in the X-Men comic books, and they kind of use Kitty Pride to introduce maybe readers who were lost in the continuity. This happens a lot in superhero comic books that have been running for decades. There's a lot of continuity, a lot of backstory, and it can be confusing. And so they use Kitty Pride to kind of be the, the eyes into the new status quo of the X-Men. She has been invited back onto the team. She uh, is reintegrating with uh, several characters with whom she has a history. And they this allows them to kind of set the stage uh, through 
through Kitty Pride. So yeah, so Astonishing X-Men is, uh, I actually think uh, Merlin Mann is right on in that it's a great jumping in point. It was great for me to jump back in. It was not hard. Um, if you're just, uh, maybe you're familiar a little bit with the X-Men and who they are, but you're looking for a jumping in point, um, the, really the only thing you need to know is that there was some, some bad stuff that went down in a place called Genosha. A lot of people died. Um, Professor X is gone. Maybe dead. Maybe not. Probably not dead now. You never know with Professor X. He kind of comes and goes. Um, and, uh, there's, uh, the school is still there. And Cyclops is running it with Emma Frost as his kind of right-hand woman and girlfriend. Uh, Beast is there, Wolverine is there, and Kitty Pride is there. And they start having adventures pretty quickly and yeah. fi- fighting with each other. Yeah, uh, Whedon was originally only going to write uh, 12 issues, and he ended up writing 20, I want to say it's 24 issues, and then a giant size issue to wrap it all up. And it kind of breaks into uh, a few four story arcs. The first one is called Gifted. Uh, and the two main uh, things that arise in this storyline are uh, that the cure for mutancy is announced. Uh, a scientist uh, says that uh, mutants are not in the, the next wave of evolution. They are a mistake in the chromosome that can be corrected through medicine and science. And we also find out that there is a new villain called Ord of the Break World who, because of a prophecy, believes that one of the X-Men is going to destroy his planet. And he's actually behind the cure being made. He's trying to end all mutants so that his planet will not be destroyed. Uh, One other thing that you do need to know if you're going to be going into the series or that makes part of the series uh, stand out more is that Colossus, who was Kitty Pryde's first love interest, uh, is dead. He he sacrificed himself to end a mutant uh, targeting virus that was called the, the Legacy Virus. And, uh, spoiler warning at this point, that matters because he comes back from the dead in, uh, this first story arc. Uh, Ord has been doing, needed a mutant on whom he could do experiments to test, uh, the cure that they're developing. And he chose Colossus and actually brought him back to life so that he could try and cure him of being a mutant. So, uh, Todd, in this first story arc by Joss Whedon, uh, I, I wanted to ask you before we talk specifically about some of the great moments that Kitty Pride has in here. Uh, you were a new reader to the X-Men, and so you didn't have some of the the foreknowledge that I mean we already covered. So did the moment when Colossus came back, like, did that have any impact for you? Uh, as a longtime reader of the X-Men, it did for me because I knew he'd been dead. I knew I, I'd read his adventures for years and years at that point, and it mattered to me when he died. And yes, all comic book deaths come with an asterisk of when they will come back. Uh, but this was, I thought, a particularly well-handled uh, return from the dead. There was even a feint making us think it was going to be Jean Grey coming back from the dead, but it ended up being Colossus. But for a new reader who was not as familiar with the the depth and continuity that the X-Men comics can can have, how did that moment hit you? Well, uh, I'll tell you. I knew who Colossus was. I had no idea that he was dead. And so when he came back, my first thought was, huh, I guess Colossus must have died sometime, <laughs> sometime in the past, and now he's back, and... Gosh, uh, Kitty sure seems happy to see him, so I guess there's probably some history there. Yeah, so you, you might not have even known uh, Kitty Pride and Colossus were, were a couple. No, uh, as a matter of fact, I had no idea. But it all still worked for you. Totally. Yeah, yeah I think that's one thing Joss Whedon does well, is he's able to 
uh, set things up. And I, I think also credit needs to go to John Cassidy, uh, Kitty Pride's expression when she first sees Colossus, yeah. uh, says an awful lot. Uh, you know, does a lot of the storytelling, a lot of the heavy lifting of what the audience is supposed to feel is, is definitely being done by Cassidy. Yeah, and I think maybe this is a, a, a time to jump into these moments. I mean, we are talking about moments now. Um, but I think one of the reasons why Kitty Pride works so well is because of her relationships with the people around her. So, like, when she she arrives at the at the school at the very beginning, and she's seeing these kind of ghost images of her uh, when she was younger, and um, so there's you know, she's with her mother, she's with Xavier. These are all direct uh, panels from early X Men comics right. that they're they're laying onto her walking through the. She's man. with she's with Colossus, so I suppose if I had been really paying attention, I would have noticed that uh, that there was some history because <laughs> it's because it's uh, uh alluded to here and, and then she she walks into this uh first kind of great hall harry potter kind of meeting uh emma frost is at the podium and you get this look on on kitty's face like uh like uh, uh oops and she says it's possible that i'm late and you just uh, there's something about Kitty's kind of innocence, like uh, gir- girlishness. I mean, she just seems young and um, real, and in a way that like Emma Frost, who is kind of set up as her foil throughout all of these stories, um, she just doesn't have the kind of polish that that Emma Frost has. And and I I love this opening scene when she kind of pops into this meeting and. And uh, there's Cyclops and Beast and Emma Frost, and yeah, it's just great. Yeah, what you're saying about uh, Kitty Pride, it's something that's always been true for the character. I uh, read a lot of the, the letters pages from those early issues. I mean, she first appeared before I was born, uh, but I've read a lot of the letters pages from those issues. And writers were, or, I mean, letters pages are a completely mediated medium. Obviously, the publisher is choosing what's there and what's not. Uh, but but a lot of letters that were published were from fans saying, I you know I feel like I could know Kitty Pride, which you don't always feel like you could know a superhero, yeah. Uh, but you, but you feel like you you could know or could be uh, a character like Kitty Pride, as you said, like she's not, um, you know, physically she's not like Emma Frost, right? Who's yeah. Uh, you know, just, um, you know, drawn in a very evocative manner. Uh, she's she's drawn much more normal. She's not sexualized the way a lot of superhero uh, characters are. Uh, and you know her her power isn't as awesome as you know as, as some some powers that we see in superhero comics. And um, she she does a lot of things not just because she has the power, but because she's good with computers. Like that's one of the other skills that she has that comes up a lot is that she you know dedicated herself to studying computers, and um, that saves the day as much as her superpower does. Yeah, but you you don't ever get the impression that she's like a super genius, right? She just is. She's really smart. And she's cool, and she she gets along with kind of disparate people. Everyone but Emma Frost, except, except for Emma Frost. Who um, in uh, I mean, it, it's uh, an interesting team dynamic that's put in there because uh, Kitty Pride's first appearance is uh, does involve Emma Frost as a supervillain trying to kidnap her, yeah, and attacking the X Men and. Uh, and and so to have them on the on the team, there's an automatic tension there, and that's what I mean. The great superhero teams always have the those dynamics of, you know, romantic couples like Scott Summers and Emma Frost, or like Kitty Pride and and Colossus. But then, 
characters that don't get along, like Kitty Pride and Emma Frost. Uh, and, you know, the loner outsider like Wolverine, you know, so you, you get a very good dynamic with only this, you know, handful of characters. Yeah, but and 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 even there, so Wolverine is a total loner, but he also has a total soft spot for Kitty. Yeah, there were, uh, he kind of took her under his wing when she was a, a young superhero, one of the early miniseries that was published about the X-Men uh, outside of their main title was Wolverine and Kitty Pride, in which they had an adventure in Japan. And she gained some ninja skills, which you need to be a superhero. You do need some ninja skills. Um, I just re- was remembering on the that episode of Back to Work when they were talking about Kitty Pride, Merlin Mann actually said that if he could be any superhero, he would choose Kitty Pride. And I remember being kind of surprised by that. Um, but she doesn't seem to have like a really dark, uh, troubled past. She just is, you know, she's just kind of. Her, she's Kitty, and she's great. Her superpower isn't uh, doesn't seem to be a huge burden for her, and she's she gets along pretty well with the people around her. And I don't know, you just she doesn't feel super tormented in the way that other people uh, in the X Men universe are. But but that doesn't take anything away from kind of her depth of emotion and the 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 way that she responds when Colossus comes back, for example. Um, is that's legitimate and real. Yeah, there's. Uh, I love the way that that relationship is handled. I mean, Colossus just came back from the dead. She is. She was in love with him. She is very excited to see him back. But she's also, you know, she runs through like, I need to know if you're not a clone. You know, are you a clone? Are you from an alternate dimension? Are you, you know, are you a holographic projection or are you really you? And even when she knows that it is him, she's still tentative around him. She says she's scared of smothering him. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, because she, she knows this is as traumatic for him to be brought back to life and, you know, to have been, as you know, tested by an alien, uh, you know, would be traumatic for him. And so she's trying to give him space. And there, there's a great line where she says, I'm, you know, I'm scared of smothering you. And he says to her, you're not smothering me nearly enough. So uh, I guess this first storyline, uh, the main uh, moments are kind of her introduction is a lot of fun. We get uh, her history and then the return of Colossus is the other standout moment and her reaction and how that relationship then unfolds are kind of the standout moments from uh, this this early storyline. Anything else with Kitty Pride and the gifted story arc that stood out to you? I just love her the way that she and Emma Frost play off of each other. Emma F- Frost always I just I always feel uncomfortable reading any comic that Emma Frost is in. Like, I mean, she just is she's so evocative and um, one like, of the most sexualized characters oh, in comics. Totally over the top, but she's also just genuinely. She, I mean, she's she's fighting with the good guys, but you're always you always have to wonder what's going on, what ulterior motive she has, um, and and there are all of these great kind of one-liners that Kitty has when she when she walks into that 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 mat meeting with the students, um, and uh, she says uh, Emma says something about you're late, and Kitty says something about I'm sorry, I was busy putting all of my clothes on <laughs> and um it's just and that's just so indicative of their whole relationship and and it's i don't know i just think it's great at any time that they interact with each other there there's so much tension from all of this past that they have and and uh i don't know, love it all right uh the second story arc is called dangerous uh and in this story arc 
Um, it is revealed that the danger room, uh, artificial intelligence is, has gained sentience and wants to be freed of just training the X-Men. The danger room, uh, is something that's been around since the very first issue of the X-Men. In those days, it was things like hoops and, uh, flamethrowers that would pop out of the wall and the X-Men would, you know, be trying to go through the hoops and avoid the flames. Uh, now the, the danger room with alien technology can, is essentially like the Star Trek Next Generation holodeck. You know, anything can be made in the danger room, but, uh, we find out that the danger room wants to be freed. Uh, it's, it feels like a slave, uh, in, you know, just creating these environments for the students to train in. It causes students to choose, uh, to commit suicide in the danger room, which overrides one of its, its main, uh, inhibitor is that it can't kill anyone, but it makes a student choose to commit suicide in there. And somehow that, uh, causes a, a a leap in the programming that allows the the danger room to kind of come out. And the other big reveal in this storyline is that Professor X heard the AI in the room gaining sentience and uh, decided that it was more important that he keep his danger room in which to train his students than to nurture the new life that was being born. I don't know. I don't know if I'm uh, if it's just my inferior intelligence or or what, but there's some. There's some stuff they they seem to just lay down a lot of um, narrative complexity <laughs> and, and just say, uh, well, because like that's the way it is, you know. <laughs> like uh, if if somebody commits suicide in the danger room, then then it can be freed. <laughs> then it can be freed and yeah. take on human form. And uh, there was a, a lot of stuff in there that I thought I don't know if I'm like yeah. missing something. I'd say both. Or if both, this is uh... really just. I mean, we need a great supervillain, and so let's, you know, don't, I feel think that way about, about, don't think about this too hard. About Dangerous and the next, the, the Hellfire Club story arc. Those ones both have a few leaps where it's like, wait, what? Oh, the Hellfire, the Hellfire arc is absolutely still incomprehensible. And you can read, the, I've read the Wikipedia article, and I've gone back and read the story <laughs> twice, and I still have no idea what's going on. Yeah, those are the two where uh, interesting moments, but it doesn't all come together. I feel the same way about the Danger one. I love Danger as a villain, uh, this idea of the Danger Room, but why you know the suicide was needed, I agree. It's not uh, explicitly clear in the narrative, uh, but you just kind of power on and go with it. Uh, and it does lead to uh, some some good moments uh, for Kitty Pride. Uh, after Danger uh, comes out of the room and, like you said, gains the physical form of whatever electronics happen to be lying around, she wants to find Professor X. That's who she's most angry at, and Professor X uh, is on Genosha. At this time, I'm pretty sure it was at this time, there was a, uh, a, a comic book series called Excalibur, which is not the same as a previous comic book, comic book series called Excalibur, but in Excalibur, Magneto and Professor X were on Genosha, trying to create a community uh, that was powered by mutants. Like, the, the mutant powers were the way things were being accomplished and that sort of thing. And she goes and finds Professor X on Genosha. The whole team is there. And she awakens this gigantic monstrosity of a sentinel uh, that was used to actually destroy the entire nation of Genosha in, during Grant Morrison's run. And has that sentinel essentially fa- focus all of its firepower on Kitty Pride, And she phases the entire team. And so there's this great hero shot of her having saved everyone. Uh, it's pretty great, and and the we get this. I mean, you, you said initially when you were when you were talking about who is Kitty Pride, and you said, well, she has this ability to kind of walk through walls and face through things. And if she's holding on to somebody when she does it, then that person can walk through walls or face through things. Um, and it's it doesn't seem like 
the greatest super the super how super power in the world. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it's probably most people would choose something like invulnerability or flight before you know or super strength. Yeah, but they they just um, when you see her in action, and this actually comes up in in Gifted when there's this hostage situation, and Kitty is kind of sneaking up through the floor, grabbing hostages and slipping them out um, of this room. Uh, and you think, wow, that's, that's actually really, it's a really useful skill that she has. And then at the very beginning of Dangerous, when they're fighting this big super monster in New York City, um, and she's just saving all of these people by essentially grabbing onto them, phasing as rubble is uh, falling on them. And it's just, you just see like, hey, you know what? She's pretty good at she's pretty good at what she does. Yeah, and she's like Captain America in the sense that I mean, Captain America's uh, weapon is a shield, and and Kitty Pride's you know her greatest strength is something that in and of itself is not violent. It's it, she's the antithesis of Wolverine or Cyclops, you know, or Cyclops, right? Yeah, the very uh, offensive power. So is clearly a defensive power. But right. she uses it in, uh, like, you, you've already listed some interesting ways, and you see probably the best fight scene ever with Kitty Pride is coming up in the next storyline. Yeah. Uh, seeing her, her powers used in an offensive way. Uh, the other big uh, Kitty Pride moment in this one for me is that she uh, saves the day not by destroying the Sentinel or anything else. She she phases into the Sentinel, and her power historically causes troubles with problems with electronics. You expect that that's going to you know, be part of it, but it's so big that she can't disrupt all of it. But she causes it... Uh, oh, well, I guess what's key is Danger has made the Sentinel sentient, like given it the same life that she has, given it the same programming, uh, so that it becomes self-aware. Uh, but D- Danger, Kitty realizes, wasn't allowing the Sentinel to remember that it was used to destroy an entire nation and to end all those lives. And Kitty Pride gives it back those memories, which is a horrifying thing to do, but it causes the Sentinel to uh, kind of ha- have self-reflection and say, I, you know, I need to get away and think of what I am and what I've done, and it flies off into, into space. At right. some point, we'll probably see that Sentinel return. We ha- I don't know that we have yet. comes back at the end of uh, Volume 4. Oh, you're right. <laughs> sorry. Oh. <laughs> spoiler, Todd. Todd, Todd warn me before you spoil things. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Forgot about that. I was thinking some other run would bring it in, but yeah. There's, um, a, there's also in this uh, in Dangerous this terrifying scene of of Kitty in the danger room facing this kind of zombie corpse of Wing, the student who committed suicide this, in the danger. So room. yeah, so the student who committed suicide and now the danger room has taken control of his body and he's this kind of twisted mangled corpse, and the danger room is changing the environment and they're they're all standing on top of skulls and they're in this kind of hellish desert place and the zombie is chasing the students around and uh and Kitty just keeps her cool and goes toe to toe with this really terrifying monster and is able to somehow keep the students in check and uh really says a lot about her her leadership and I mean, S- Summers is the leader of the X Men, but uh, we we don't get the impression that Kitty is not the leader because she's not capable of of being a leader. She's really, I I, I feel like she's really on top of her game in that scene, kind of handling all of these students and um, sparring verbally, sparring with this uh, incredible artificial intelligence. 
All right, Todd, I've, I've tackled the summary of the first two. I'd like you to tackle the summary of the third volume of Joss Whedon's run. Uh, volume three. Well, let me tell you about volume, volume three. Let me uh, pull up my little thing here. <laughs> Uh, so it, just a couple things. Uh, the Hellfire Club is a group of supervillains that was the enemies again in this first storyline. That I can do this. I can do this. I can. Do I, this. I, I, well, I'm setting the stage before you okay. try and describe what Joss Whedon wrote. Okay. <laughs> this particular, I love Joss Whedon as a writer, but uh, this particular storyline is is a a tough nut to crack. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so having the Hellfire Club and Kitty Pride. Uh, adds, you know, their history is important. And Emma Frost was originally a supervillain, a member of the Hellfire Club called the White Queen. Okay, so Emma Frost is hanging out with the X-Men now. She's uh, Scott Summers' girlfriend, Cyclops. Towards the end of uh, Volume 2, she's, we're, she, she's talking to some kind of sh- shadowy characters, and we get the impression that she's got some, she's got some uh, tricks up her sleeve for the X-Men, some plans. So this woman shows up. Her name is Cassandra Nova. She is apparently Professor Xavier's alter ego and arch nemesis and twin sister, but she's really an alien. And uh, how's that for Cassandra Nova? Uh, Professor Xavier's uh, <laughs> twin that he killed in the womb, but she survived. Right. So uh, let's just go with that. So we've got her. We've got Shaw, who uh, is this guy that dresses like he's in the 18th century, and uh, we've got oh, what's this girl's name? I can't I can't remember it ever. The Dream Girl with uh, the rock band name. Oh, it's uh, Teenage Negabomb Supernova. That one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, what, what? she'll be in the show notes. So it's uh, those four, and then this uh, this hooded figure that's called uh, Perfection, and they start getting into people's minds, um, Kitty's mind, and and uh, the minds of all of the other. Todd, I've got the name. Okay, go for it. Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Yes, that's her. When um, Kitty Pride hears her name, she says, "We've really run out of superhero <laughs> names, haven't we? We have really run out of names." So, uh, long story short, Emma Frost decides to take over the X-Men to cripple them by uh, each member of the, of the Hellfire Club getting into the heads of the X-Men. And so the, the teenage Nega, Nega... Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Negasonic Teenage Warhead is the one that goes after Kitty. Get it right, Todd. I'm sorry. Uh, I... Yeah, I'm doing my best. So uh, <laughs> she goes after Kitty. She convinces her. Uh, she forces her to phase, and Kitty starts just phasing into the center of the Earth, right? So if she starts phasing, she'll just sink. And so she sinks into the into the center of the Earth. Um, Wolverine becomes his child self, and Wolverine as a child was kind of a pampered uh, dandy. I don't know. I don't know what yeah, yeah. Um, Beast uh, loses his ability to reason and turns into a big feral beast and is chasing around this uh, child Wolverine and actually eats off his leg at, at one point. Um, and Emma Frost gets into Scott Summer's head and essentially just destro- just destroys him completely psychologically uh, to the point that he loses his power. 
Well, and um, he, he's catatonic. Yeah. And uh, who am I missing? Did I get them all? Colossus fights Sebastian Shaw. Oh, right. Colossus, uh, Colossus fights Sebastian Shaw, whose superpower is that he absorbs kinetic energy. And so Colossus delivers this uh, colossal beatdown, uh, which Shaw absorbs. And then, um, and then he uh, retaliates and incapacitates Colossus. Um, the two students that really get the, get the X-Men out of this bind are Hizako, uh, who, uh, her superhero name is Armor, and she, uh, her superpower is that she has this really great, I don't even know how to explain it. Exoskeleton uh, that forms around her. An exoskeleton that forms around her like a force field. But um, yeah, it's a it's like an energy exoskeleton. I, I believe it's a psychokinetic armor based off her relationship with her ancestors. Right, yeah, it's the power of her ancestors. So producer Andrew coming in with the answer there. Thank you. And uh, Blindfold, who I've actually seen in a couple of other stories. I don't really know almost anything about Blindfold except that she wears a blindfold and she seems to have some kind of... Uh, psychic um, powers, c- sort of akin to Emma Frost's powers, but different. And she s- does she see the future? Kind of, sometimes, vaguely, and she doesn't explain it very well when she does. Okay. So she and Hizako really kind of come in and save the day, um, and uh, the X-Men all progressively get their powers back, and... Um, they come just in time to save uh so so the whole the whole plot is that i think if i if i get this right um all of these hellfire club members are just pieces of emma frost um or projections of emma frost's uh, psyche and the whole point of it is to get um Kitty Pride to phase into uh, a box that has some sort of alien slug, goopy globby alien slug that, um, if if Cassandra Nova gets hold of it, she could actually come back in in uh, in corporeal form. Right, or maybe the slug has her consciousness, is what I thought, and. Okay. Uh, so my understanding, which is similar to yours, it's a confusing one, uh, is that as uh, Emma Frost was defeating Cassandra Nova back in Grant Morrison's run, Cassandra Nova left a piece of her inside Emma Frost's mind, uh-huh. urging her to free this slug that contained Cassandra Nova's consciousness. Right. But it's a little murky. Again, this is not... This has some of my very f- favorite moments of the entire Joss Whedon run, but as a whole... It does not come together into a, the most coherent story I've ever read in my life. Uh, no, not at like, all. The child Wolverine, delightful. I cannot get enough of reading about him and <laughs> his fear of the blue moose that's chasing yes. him. Uh, or even uh, Beast, not so. I mean, Beast, it's fine when he's feral. It's not the most entertaining thing, but when he stops being feral and he overcompensates uh, into yeah. academic mode, also, <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, so some of the, the funnest moments of the entire run are in this storyline, but it is it is a weird one. So let's talk for a minute about Kitty's moments in here. Right. Uh, my favorite moment for her, and it's one of the most famous moments with the, uh, Wolverine, actually, is back in the original Hellfire Club story, 
all of the X-Men were kind of taken down one by one by members of the Hellfire Club or minions of the Hellfire Club, similar to what we see happen in this one. And Wolverine uh, was smashed down into the basement, and they assumed he was dead. And the last panel of one of those issues is Wolverine looking up uh, while, you know, half submerged in water and saying, now it's my turn. And that kind of made the character of Wolverine. He hadn't had a whole lot of identity, actually, before that. Uh, John Byrne was really pushing to give more character to Wolverine and add some depth and, and turning him into kind of the tough guy on the team. Uh started to cement him as a fan favorite. And Kitty Pride gets the exact mirror uh, of that moment after she's been phased down into the earth. She's able to focus and stop herself from doing it. She's exhausted, and she's lying in this puddle of water somewhere in a cavern inside the earth. And she just looks up and says, now it's my turn. This is totally, I mean, uh, this is her baptism. I mean, she ends up in a puddle of water in the bottom of a cave. This is her rock bottom moment. And then she ascends out of it. It's really, really well done. She comes back and confronts Emma, and that's I think I think my possibly oh, the, my favorite. the fight scene with Emma Frost and and right. Kitty yeah, and and it's through a mirror where so Emma can hear Kitty's thoughts, I guess, through a through a mirror, and um, and you see this kind of. I mean, they really are kind of opposite mirror images of each other. Um, and then uh, Kitty phases Emma into a cave and right. leaves her there. Well, there's a cool fight scene of, of uh, very well done by John Cassidy, of, of Kitty punching through the wall. So she's phasing her arm through the wall, but making her fist solid and, you know, hitting Emma Frost and then grabbing Emma and pulling Emma well, and Kitty's phasing her arm now. She pulls Emma towards the wall, but then lets Emma's face hit the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, she doesn't phase Emma into the wall. So uh, showing things that could be done with this power that hadn't really been explored all that much before. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. And with using, uh, you know, the static images of the comic book, it's just amazing storytelling that happens there. Yeah. You, like you follow the action. You feel like you're seeing the action sequence on a screen when your mind's filling in everything that's happening, but it's being laid out so clearly and artistically that it all fills in perfectly. And you really see, I think you really get a, a sense in this, uh, in this volume of Kitty's spine. I mean, she's, she's not, we know as well as Emma Frost knows. So uh, apparently uh, if Kitty phases you through something and then let's go while you're in the middle of it, then you're dead. Right? Yeah. I mean, if your head is in the middle of a rock and then she lets go of you, then your head fuses with the rock and you die. And she threatens Emma Frost with that. And, and Frost says, you know, like, I know that you're not going to, that you're not going to do that. You're not going to kill me. And, uh, and Kitty says, you're right. And then she, <laughs> but I, but I will leave you here in the, in a hole in a rock in the middle of the earth and takes off and, um, you just kind of see her, uh, her willingness to kind of toe the line. And then in the end, she has to go back and get, and get Emma Frost, who's made her suffer through this really horrible mental ordeal. And, and you see kind of her willingness to do what needs to be done for the greater good. Right. Uh, this volume ends with the, uh, them all getting taken up onto a spaceship and actually heading 
back to Ord of the Break World's home world uh, because now it's time for the, the big finale, which it involves, uh, again, this alien home world that believes that one of the X-Men is going to destroy their, their whole planet uh, is now going to have a bunch of X-Men land on it. Uh, the X-Men want to make sure uh, that the Break World's fail, fail safe, uh, which was to destroy planet Earth, doesn't take place, uh, but the Break World people obviously want to make sure that a mutant doesn't destroy their planet. Uh, so that's where we're we're building to. Uh, Kitty kind of disappears for a chunk of this this particular storyline. Yeah, I mean, um, she's there, but 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 not pro- a protagonist. Yeah, uh, definitely. We we see a lot more of Wolverine kind of forming a bond with Armor, uh, the character that kind of stepped up during the Hellfire story arc. Uh, we see. Uh, more of Col- uh, Cyclops who's woken up, uh, you know, being the the leader that we expect him to be, uh, and Beast having some repartee with a, uh, the head of an agency called Shield, Sword, uh, or Sword. Sorry, the the intergalactic version of Shield. Uh, um, and so, yeah, so several other characters kind of take front and center for a lot of the storyline. We find out that Colossus is the mutant that they fear is going to destroy their planet. Uh, there's um, all sorts of politics and culture that we, we get introduced into this world, but mostly it's building towards this moment of a, a what we believe to be a missile being launched at Earth. And as much as we said, Kitty Pride kind of faded to the background for a chunk of this storyline. She really, really takes front and center here at the end. Back, yeah. Um, so we they, find, oh, go ahead. No, you no, go. You. Oh. <laughs> Todd, the mic is yours. So uh, these... We've got Kitty and some of her friends. They fight their way to this moon that looks an awful lot like a Death Star, but with a bullet in the middle of it. Um, and they, uh, they're they trying to figure out a way to, to disable this missile that is pointed at Earth, and there doesn't seem to be, to be a way to stop it. Uh, and Kitty just says, you know what, I'm just going to phase into the middle of the thing and, and uh, disable it. So she phases down, 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 down. She's been making comments all throughout about how the materials from this planet make her weak, and they're hard for her to phase in and out of. Um, And she phases for miles through solid metal uh, and ends up in the middle of this hollow uh, missile and realizes that it's not a missile, it's a bullet. And it launches with her, apparently because she's in it. Is that right? Or just because it was when it was going to be launched. I don't know. That's because she was in it. Okay. Uh, so anyway, she's inside of the bullet. It launches, and it's headed towards Earth. Um, the uh, We got Spider-Man, Storm, Doctor Strange, all of these superheroes on Earth trying to stop it. And there is some kind of magical protection on the bullet that makes it so that they can't stop it. And the the bullet is careening towards Earth. Nobody can do anything except for Kitty Pride, who puts her hand on the on the bullet and with all of her strength uh, phases the bullet as it passes through the Earth and she is sent hurtling into space with no uh, we have no idea of knowing how or when she will ever be saved except. And actually, I don't know how or when she is ever <laughs> ever saved, except I really hope that she is. Eventually she is brought back, yes. Uh, but she has a problem in that she can't uh, turn solid for a while. Oh, 
she's stuck phased because she phased so much and used all of her consciousness to to phase the bullets that she can't turn it off. So it's, uh, it's but it's, it's it's a while before she comes back. They they leave her floating in space. Oh, it's poor kitty, poor kitty. Uh, it, anyway, it's just just this great moment of self sacrifice and um and I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, and it's something Joss Whedon does very well. Uh, building up a character, making you fall in love with the character, and and then uh, killing you know, the character, killing the character. Uh, <laughs> sometimes in not the most heroic ways, but often <laughs> just to surprise you. Sometimes he'll just kill a character randomly. Uh, but he often will let the character go out, and you know this is a the traditional blaze of glory. Like she is literally saving the entire planet uh, with this act, and she's making that choice. It's not just that she's you know stepping in front of the bullet because she's there at the moment. She's having to you know, choose to will all of her powers into this one act uh, that, you know, drains her completely. And this, uh, th- I mean, this uh, idea of sacrifice is set up really well throughout. So you've got, um, at the beginning, uh, towards the beginning of this, uh, the X-Men appear to be in an impossible situation. Uh, one of them has to sacrifice uh, themselves so that the others will have time to make a getaway uh, and it's Scott who does it. So Cyclops, who's lost, still lost his powers, uh, jumps in a ship and does this kind of... It's It reminds me of the, uh, the opening of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek, where he sacrifices himself in this kind of blaze of glory to save his friends. His ship is destroyed. He dies in space, but is brought back by the aliens. Um, and then you've got Brand... And, and then you have... All of the X-Men um, criticizing Brand, who is this green-haired head of of this intergalactic agency. And she's really good at bossing everybody around, but nobody really trusts her. And she doesn't really seem to be the best leader. And totally unwilling to sacrifice herself, but happy to sacrifice other people, uh, really, at the drop of a hat. Uh, but then sacrifices herself to save Beast, um, just as Kitty is phasing into this bullet and and is going to make this ultimate sacrifice to save Earth. So it's really uh, it's kind of nice doing things in threes and uh, and setting up these progressive uh, themes. Themes, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, that's you know the the big moment of the series is uh, Kitty Pride's sacrifice, um, letting a fan favorite character float off into space. Uh, but it feels earned throughout this whole arc. Uh, like you said, it's uh, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It was set up thematically, and I think it was set up for this this character that this is what she would do. Um, which, uh, if you've gone back and read her first issues, she was portrayed as a scared thirteen year old who wasn't quite sure what she was getting into. And by hearkening back to those and those earliest images of Astonishing X Men. For longtime fans of the character, you see this massive evolution from the scared thirteen-year-old who only has a defensive power to this hero who uses her powers in in amazing ways and literally saves the, the whole planet. Yeah, and you you even get a moment of respect from Emma Frost, which you had not expected to see uh, between those two characters. Yeah, and they're all they all and they all have their kind of identity, but inside of who they are, they really. They feel real and malleable. Even somebody like Emma Frost, who's made out of diamonds. Yes. She feels like she's capable of change. Um, I I just remember when I finished this, the first time that I read through it, 
was one of those like staying up late at night. I, I've got to, I can't, I can't stop reading this. I have to finish it. And it gave me one of those, just that great feeling when you read something that you've really enjoyed and it's made you think and made you feel and you just kind of turn the last page and then you take a deep sigh like, man, that was a, that was a heck of a story. Well told. Had and, a rough patch, but it was so well told as a whole. Yeah. And this, this last, um, the, I, my favorite part of this whole, whole series um, these four volumes is this um, this thing that Kitty says. She says it the first time uh, directly to Colossus, and then it's re- echoed at the end. And it's just about how we um, we think we keep telling ourselves that that things will be better when kind of the storms have passed, and and then you realize that like life is the storm. And it's it's not really going to get better. It's just going to be hard. It's just going to be a different storm. And uh, and the best we can do is, um, you know, if we ever find somebody to love uh, or a moment of happiness, then we just have to hold on to it so tight because it's here and then it's gone. And um, and the art is beautiful, and the the message just has really rung true to me. Um, uh, like on a on a personal level, as I've gone through a lot of stuff in the last year since I read this book, uh, I find myself thinking about that all the time. Um, when I when I when I find myself thinking, you know, things are going to be better later, and and feeling sorry for myself, I think, you know what, this is my life. My life is the storm. I chose it, and I'm going to own it, and I'm going to and I'm going to hold as tight as I can to the happiness and the and the joy and the people that I love that are close to me. And I think that's pretty awesome when something like a comic book can, can help me through really hard times. And, um, and I'm not just saying it like this story made a huge, huge impact on me. Yeah. Uh, and if you'd like to read more of Todd's thoughts on that subject, you can find an essay that he wrote in a book entitled, uh, the ages of the X-Men essays on the children of the Adam and changing times. It's available in, uh, many bookstores and also on Amazon. I wasn't going to say anything, but you brought I decided to. Yeah, and uh, so that, that fine book is actually edited by this really smart guy that I know named uh, Joseph Dorowski. Joseph yes. J. Dorowski. If you're Little plug there. Yeah. Uh, you, you said that when you finished reading this, there was just a sigh of contentment. I just wanted to say that you, having read this when you did, that was allowed to you because you read it all in one collected form. This series was plagued by massive delays when it was being released from its very first story arc uh, until this giant size one. And it was, uh, I was reading it as they were being released. Uh, it was originally monthly, and I think there was a four-month delay at one point early on. I think it went bi-monthly, and I don't remember how long the delay was before the giant size finale came out. Uh, but that's, you know, that happens with comic books. It's uh, generally a monthly uh, story, but uh, they really wanted John Cassidy to draw every panel of this so that it would be one whole. And uh, when he fell behind, they they decided to wait. And actually, like other uh, X Men storylines from other series, uh, picked up on things that were happening in this one, and they kind of, as much as possible, didn't spoil it. But they moved past the points we were at in Astonishing X Men because of the delays. Yeah, that's why I've decided to never read anything uh, as it comes out. I just only get things in trade. And then I don't have to worry about that. 
All right. Well, uh, I think this uh, qualifies as a great character and a great story. Uh, this is one of my favorite X-Men story arcs. Like I said, yeah, there's some rough, rough parts, but even in those, some of my very favorite moments come through. And Kitty Pride is one of my very favorite characters uh, in, in all storytelling. She's pretty, she's pretty awesome. Do We're at uh, 56 minutes. Do you want to talk about any other characters, or is there anything that we've missed that just this podcast can't end without mentioning? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think we can fit any more in this one. <laughs> Once we get into the intro, or the, yeah, the intro music, and whenever we finally finalize our outro, I think we'll be pushing the limits. All right. All right, well, we will finalize <laughs> okay, an outro okay. next No, time. I have to say one more thing. Okay. So... Uh, Beast eats off Wolverine's leg. As you do. As they do. (laughs) And when you're on a team, it happens. And then he comes back and he says, you ate my leg. And he says, well, uh, what are friends for? And he says, I'm pretty sure it's not for that. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty fantastic. Uh, One other great moment. Uh, One last one is uh, Wolverine is this this little boy child running around not you know doesn't know who he is scared of everything uh and um and and beast was had turned feral and beast had this uh system in place to return him to a sense of should this ever happen where uh it involved all these drugs that were going to you know reintroduce his his uh sense memories and you know kind of bring him back to full consciousness through this very complex series of events uh, and Wolverine came back because he uh, got thrown into the the kitchen and a can of beer fell on his head and he looked at it <laughs> and remembered that he liked beer. <laughs> I love it at the very at the very end when they're all everybody's feeling sad because they've lost Kitty and uh, Armor comes into this room. Wolverine's surrounded by beer empty beer cans and she says, "Can I help?" And he says, "Are you a beer?" <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great. That wraps up this episode. You can find our full show notes and a list of all our episodes at protagonistpodcast.com. Also, please let us know how we're doing by sending us email at feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or find us on Twitter. I'm at Todd K. Mack. He is at Jay Dorowski. Our producer is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And please join us next week when we will be back here talking about another great character and a great story. problem member of the team you were the uh, emma frost of our awesome. team which awesome. is which is just uh, which is just like <laughs> just like me <laughs> I, just if burned, i could tell you how many times i've been compared mind. to emma frost in my lifetime um, has burned into my mind an image that will never be removed. <laughs>